there are times when I think you, you know something is going to be difficult, but you don't really appreciate it until you're in the thick of it. And to probably uh, the most recent example of that in our memory probably would be uh, sending a team to plant in Hickman. Uh, you know, we uh, certainly all are cognizant of the fact that you know that would mean sending people out, beloved brothers and sisters out, people maybe that have been uh, a part of our family for a long time, and uh, and able to appreciate that, uh, you know, months and months ago, uh, but like at least for me, that didn't really make August any easier. Like actually. Uh, saying goodbye was was difficult, and I think like in the the text this morning, uh, you know, Peter. I think we need to appreciate uh, probably that Peter's at one of those points in his ministry where like he's seen where this has been going. Like he's been through Samaria, he went to the Tanner's house, he went up to Caesarea. He's he's. He's had the vision. Like, he, he knows where this is going. But now he's standing in front of a bunch of Gentiles, and he's about to share the hope of the gospel with them. And I'm sure if he's anything like most of the rest of us, probably in the back of his mind, even as all this is playing out, and even as he's very confident uh, that this is what the Lord wants him to do, Probably there's a, a thought bouncing around, uh, something like, what's everybody in Jerusalem going to say about this? And as we uh, finish out chapter 10 and then move into chapter 11, uh, Luke really highlights for us uh, Peter's sharing of the gospel with the Gentiles, their uh, receiving of the gospel, and then how the church responds to the gospel moving forward even farther. And so I want to read the rest of uh, chapter 10 this morning. We'll walk through this, and then next week, Pastor George is going to, we're going to kind of step back, and he's going to look at Joshua chapter 9, and we're going to talk a little bit about how we can see in Scripture that God was always working towards this point, and in a couple weeks, we'll pick back up in chapter 11. So let's read the text this morning together. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people 
and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the words. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are humbled by your goodness to us, God, that you would appoint this time for us to uh, sit uh, under your word together, Lord, that you would uh, enable us by your spirit to, uh, to see and understand the truth that it contains. And Lord, we pray that, uh, God, that we have the joy of doing these things uh, week after week, would never uh, dull our sense of marvel, God, that we would continually wonder at the work that you're doing in us. And Lord, we pray that as you humble us this morning, God, as you renew our minds, Lord, that we would uh, worship you, God, that we would extol your name, God, that we would marvel at the gift of your Spirit, and God, not just the gift of your Spirit, but Lord, what that gift cost in the blood of Jesus Christ. God, we know that it is only by Him that we can freely receive these graces. And Lord, we thank You, God, for the love that You've shown us through Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So we, last week, we kind of talked about the Peter and Cornelius' coming together, uh, Cornelius being in some ways, kind of a Gentile of Gentiles, and uh, we left them uh, with Cornelius uh, telling Peter, we know that you have something to tell us, so what is it? And we're going to pick up with uh, Peter's response. And even as Peter had sort of began the whole conversation with, you know that I shouldn't be here because I'm a Jew, right? Uh, as uh, 34 picks up, uh, Peter, uh, it really seems to, like, this reality has finally sort of cemented for him. Uh, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, that his vision that there are, not, are no longer clean and unclean animals is also true of persons, that there are not clean and unclean persons, but every, in every nation, anyone who fears the Lord and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as you read what Peter says, I think you could almost understand him to be saying something like, uh, Cornelius is saved already because of what he had been doing, but surely that's not 
what Peter is saying here. I think Peter is recognizing that the Holy Spirit's already been at work in the household of Cornelius, and certainly in Cornelius's heart himself, that his uh, willingness to humble himself before the Lord and worship God as best as he knows how uh, indicates uh, the sort of humility that, that really means he's, he's primed to hear the gospel. He is ready to respond in obedience to the Lord. He just doesn't entirely know what the Lord wants of him yet. And so with this uh, opening proclamation, I think uh, we, should, we should understand Peter to be saying that, like the, that what I'm about to tell you is an offer as much for you as it is for me, and I can see already that the Lord has humbled your heart, that you fear him, that you desire to do what is right, that you, you want to do what the Lord is calling you to do, so he's about to explain exactly what the Lord calls for from not just Jews, but all people. And he basically, uh, as he explains the gospel here, it's interesting that you know Mark is the gospel of, kind of Peter's account, and the gospel explanation here, the, the ministry of Jesus as explained here, is roughly an outline of the gospel of Mark. Uh, you know, Peter lays out that you know uh, Jesus came preaching the good news of peace, and peace is often used uh, in Acts kind of synonymously with salvation, that God is seeking to make all peace with all people through Jesus Christ. In fact, he is the Lord of all people, that he ministered in Judea, and he, he seems to be pretty confident that Cornelius knows all about Jesus already, that uh, Jesus's uh, ministry had attracted enough attention that word had certainly got to Caesarea. And even by the, the uh, end of the book, in chapter 26, Paul will make a, same, a similar claim with Agrippa, that everybody knows who Jesus is. Everybody has heard about Jesus. Yet Peter still goes on to highlight some basic facts about the person of Jesus, that he ministered in Galilee, that he received the baptism of John, and at the baptism of John, he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, he went on for a few years uh, ministering in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, but in also in seeking to do good for all people, Jews, Samaritans, that he sought to do good for anyone that he came across, and uh, principally that happened in healing, alleviating suffering, uh, saving those who were oppressed by demons, uh, that God's power was clearly and visibly manifested in the person of Jesus Christ as he continually demonstrated his power over nature, his power over the spiritual realm, in fact, even his power over life and death as he resurrected some. And uh, we, Peter, I mean, we and the apostles, we saw all of this. We saw it in Galilee. We saw it in Jerusalem. These aren't uh, rumors. They're not just stories. Like, I saw all of it. It actually happened. And it, he further says... Uh, Uh, that despite uh, this fact, despite the fact that he was pursuing the good of everyone around him, they, and I think we uh, 
Certainly the Romans are the ones that put him to death, but he, he probably means the Jews here as he has earlier in the book. The Jews put him to death by hanging him on a tree. They put him under a curse, yet death could not contain him. God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. And this would be, uh, I'm sure Cornelius had heard about this, but this would probably be the most striking thing for a non-Jewish person. Cornelius would have no frame of reference for physical resurrection, and this would probably be the hardest part of everything that Peter says for him to really wrap his mind around. And uh, Peter seems to recognize that because he goes on to emphasize uh, that, well, not everyone saw Christ resurrected. Some of us were chosen to witness him, right? That, That I also have seen the resurrected Christ with my own eyes, and not only that, but we know that it was a physical reaction, r- resurrection. He didn't just appear to be alive, but we ate with him and we drank with him. He did things that only a physical person could do, that Jesus Christ absolutely, entirely, and utterly conquered death. He was physically resurrected, and in his physically resurrected state, he gave us a simple command to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone, to all people. And typically, uh, Peter or, or Jewish people would only use the word that we're translating people here to refer to Jews, but when he uses it to Gentiles, we're seeing further how much this truth has really sunk in for Peter, that he understands that the gospel needs to go out to the Gentiles and... Uh, that he's going to proclaim the gospel of grace, uh, testifying to Christ, who ultimately is the judge of the living and the dead. And as we kind of transition out of sermons that are primarily directed towards Jews and more into sermons that are primarily directed towards Gentiles, I think we'll also notice a shift that's marked here and carried through the rest of the book where in most of the sermons to this point, they've very heavily relied on quoting portions of the Old Testament and demonstrating how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the prophets predicted. And uh, kind of from this point forward, there's going to be less emphasis on how Jesus is the fulfillment of uh, Old Testament prophecy and more emphasis on the fact that absolutely all people will stand before God the judge. That all people, Jew or Gentile, are liable to God for judgment, and that Jesus Christ is the only way that a person lives through the judgment, the wrath of a holy God. He mentions that the prophets were bearing witness about this, but again says uh, anyone standing before the judge, the only person who can receive forgiveness as the one who believes in him. And I think Luke, in a way, establishes this in his gospel, but we we didn't start in Luke. And I think uh, at this point, I think it's it's incumbent that we talk uh, frankly about what believe in him means. I think not only for our own sakes that uh, that 
If you were to ask me, which I don't know that you would, but if you were to ask, you know, what is one of the things that uh, you think particularly ails the American church? Like, why is the church the way it is? Uh, I would probably pretty quickly respond that uh, there's a lot of confusion about what it means to really believe in Christ. And uh, there are a lot of people who are almost Christian. Uh, and uh, for that reason, uh, certainly uh, we want to be clear about what exactly it means to believe in Jesus for our sakes, but also for the sake of the people that we share the gospel with, right? And you'll, you'll notice in Peter's sermon that before there's any call to belief, there's a call to uh, understand, to know certain facts about the gospel, Right? And think about Romans 10, Paul essentially makes the same argument in Romans chapter 10, that there are things a person needs to know about Jesus in order to be saved, and that unless we preach those things, that people can't know those things, and if people don't know those things, they can't believe those things. And uh, I think we would all quickly agree that certainly knowing the facts about Jesus isn't the same as faith. A person could know what Christians say about Jesus and not believe those facts about Jesus to be true. And, and we would all say that a person who knows what a Christian says about Jesus but doesn't believe those facts about Jesus to be true is not a person who is saved. That a person not only has to know the claims about Christ, but also has to believe the claims about Christ to be true. They need to assent to the truth of those facts. And yet, I think, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people stop there. They know what is said about Jesus. They probably even believe some of the things or all of the things that are said about Jesus to be true, but there's no marked difference in their life whatsoever. Uh, James would say that they have the sort of belief that demons have. Even the demons believe and shudder. The, the demons know everything that Peter just laid out about the person of Jesus. They even believe it to be true. They, well, they know it to be true. They witnessed it. But those demons are not saved. When, when Peter is calling Cornelius and his household to believe in Christ, He's not just calling them to understand certain facts about Jesus. He's not just calling them to assent to the truth of certain facts about Jesus. But he's saying, put your belief in those facts. Put your whole being in those things. Put your trust in Christ. Trust in Christ as your appeal before God. Know that when you stand before Him in judgment, if you lean on anything other than the person of Jesus Christ, you are liable for the judgment of God. That you have to put your trust in Him. And I don't know that there is uh, any sufficient analogy to capture the nuance there, but if I could make it any more simple, I would probably suggest to you that when you walked into this room for the first time, you recognized these things to be chairs, right? Like you know enough about chairs. Like, well, that sure looks like a chair, and probably 
he even walked towards it, assuming it was a chair that would sit down, but I would doubt that many of you like tested it by pushing on it to make sure it was a chair before you just kind of plopped down in it. You believed that it would hold your weight, and so at a certain point, you just kind of dropped into it, and at least for now, it's held your weight, and no one's been embarrassed. When I say put your belief in Christ, I'm saying that we can't just know who he is, we can't just believe him to be who he says he is, but belief in Christ, the kind of belief that Peter is talking about here is like dropping your weight and trusting that Christ will do for you what he said he will do for you, that he is your satisfaction, that he is your joy, that he is your only appeal before God. That's the kind of trust that Peter is calling these Gentiles to, and ultimately we see it's the kind of trust that they display on on hearing this call to belief. They immediately put their trust in Christ. Peter's not even done preaching his sermon yet, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them, which is uh, another interesting fact about the book of Acts, right? So far, we've typically seen a person be baptized physically and then be baptized in the Spirit. And here, the order is reversed. These people are baptized in the Spirit, and then only after that, baptized in water. But their baptism in the Spirit, the the Spirit coming on them, plays out almost exactly as it did in Acts chapter 2. I mean, other than in Acts chapter 2, what was said, they were speaking in other tongues, and here it just says speaking in tongues. But other than that, the phrase is, identical, right? That, that they are uh, seeing in front of them Gentiles replaying what happened in Acts chapter 2. And certainly Peter is shocked by it, and maybe even more than Peter, because these other six people that came with him hadn't had his vision. They're amazed at what they're seeing. They, can't, they cannot believe that Gentiles are receiving the Spirit in the way that They've received the Spirit, and they're they're sure that it's happening because uh, the praise of God is immediately on their lips, just as it was in Pentecost, that God puts his approval on everything that's just happened by demonstrating for Peter and these other six that this is absolutely of him, that these people are folded into uh, the life of the church in the same way that any Jewish believer has, that that God reveals to them uh, clearly, unequivocally, that these people are as much a part of his people as anyone else. And Peter, the sixth, look at everything that's happening. Look at what the Lord is doing, and they, they decide that the only appropriate response is to make their identification with these new Gentile converts public, right? Uh, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? They, They recognize what's happening and their response immediately is, let's publicly identify with them. And so Peter commands them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Right? And uh, 
there's a couple things happening here. Number one, I think, uh, you know, Peter uh, basically unilaterally decides on the behalf of the Jerusalem church that they are going to baptize Gentiles into the church, which I think displays a remarkable amount of faith on Peter's part, uh, but also demonstrates how clearly he thinks the Lord is working here. Like, this is absolutely God's hand. People can't deny it. I don't need to call a council with the other apostles. Let's act. And at the same time, I think uh, we learn all kinds of things about baptism, I think, in this text. Uh, Number one, I think we see that there are lots of people out there that probably make baptism more than it is. There are plenty of people who profess to be Christians who would say that baptism is essential for salvation. And yet, uh, here we see people hear the gospel, receive the gospel, be indwelt by the Holy Spirit before they were baptized in water. That the sequence here is all out of order for anyone that would say baptism is essential for salvation. And immediately we should think that there are a lot of people, uh, anyone who would say that baptism is essential for salvation or even uh, essential for receiving the Holy Spirit, that uh, this text seems to fly in the face of either of those claims. And yet, I don't think probably that many of us would say that baptism is essential for salvation or uh, essential for the reception of the Holy Spirit. I certainly hope not. I think probably... uh, if I were to guess, there would be more of us that would say that, well, I mean, I'm not going to say baptism's unimportant, but it's really not. I mean, it's not necessary. It's not like life and death. I mean, it's a thing you can do, but it's not all that important, right? And uh, the pendulum swings the opposite way. And I think probably uh, to the degree that we would Uh, probably err more towards that side, this text is also problematic if we're thinking that, right? That even as uh, this text is demonstrating to us that uh, baptism shouldn't be considered on the first order of things, that baptism is certainly unimportant. There's nothing about this text that would communicate to us that baptism is inconsequential, that Peter's response immediately on seeing that these people have come to faith is commanding them to be baptized, right? Not, not suggesting that they should be baptized, not saying let's, get bat- let's do baptism when we get around to it, but he commands that they be baptized. And I think I don't know about you, but I have the sense that uh, our society sort of seems to have lost its ability to be sensitive to nuance. Like, that uh, something's either all of something or none of something, that there's never any, like, in-between, and that everything is simple. And certainly for the Christian, there are things that are like that, right? That you either have all of Christ or you have none of Christ. There's no shade of gray in the middle, right? You have all of Christ or none of Christ. And at the same time that we have to recognize that there are some truths that are absolutely like that, that it's either all of it or none of it, right? That 
uh, with respect to baptism, and we'll continue to see this through Acts, we'll continue to kind of chip away at a theology of baptism, uh, I think we need to at this point recognize that baptism is uh, the sort of truth where maybe there is sort of a, a middle ground, or there are two ditches. There are people that make baptism far more than it should be, and there are lots of people who make baptism so little it's almost nothing. And that we need to be people who understand what baptism is and why it's important in the life of the church. Uh, Here, Peter's command that they be baptized, I think, is uh, for two reasons, uh, maybe three. Number one, uh, it is publicly identifying with these Gentile converts, that he's demonstrating that they are received into fellowship. I think for the church's sake, so that the church understands that these people are received into fellowship, that the gospel that they're proclaiming is the gospel that the church is also preaching, but also for their sake, that they understand that they're being folded into the family of Christ. But uh, I also think that for the individual, for the person being baptized, what's, what's happening here is equally important, uh, that these individuals, the people of Cornelius' household, are, uh, they've received the Holy Spirit in faith, and their response to the reception of God's gift is immediate obedience to the command of the Lord. The Lord commanded them to be baptized before Peter did, and their response to the Lordship of Christ is obedience, not questions, not wondering whether or not it's important, but simple obedience to the Lord's command, and that's reflected here in this text. But uh, note that everything that the gospel prompts here isn't just uh, felt in the first 15 minutes. There's not uh, praising, they're not speaking in tongues and praising the Lord and then the response of baptism and then back to normal. But for both Peter and the Gentiles, and this detail is easy to mix as the narr- miss as the narrative goes, but Luke inserts, uh, they asked him to remain for several days and everything about the way this is structured in the gates and he obliged. Right? That Peter didn't just go to Samaria, step into their house, preach the gospel to them, see them receive the Holy Spirit, and then uh, say, okay, well, I'm going to back out now. But he stayed there with them. He publicly identifies with them, and he remains with them. And there is so much in this little sentence that is not written, right? Like, what on earth would it be like for Peter a Jew, to stay in a Gentile house for three days, right? Like, how does this go? Like, they stop speaking in tongues, and they kind of look around, and they're like, well, we should, we should baptize, and they baptize, and then, and then, well, what do we do now? And they're like, well, let's, I don't know, eat supper? It's about that time, and so they make the meal, and, and Peter and these six other Jews sit down, and like, they are handed some food, and they taste it, and they're like, what is this? And uh, oh, it's like a jalapeno pepper with cream cheese and cheddar and you know little bits of bacon in it. And they like cough it up and they're like, "What?" And like it's got bacon in it. And they're like, ah, "It's delicious, but I don't know what I should like. Can I eat this? Can I not eat?" Like, I mean, 
Think about how it would play out for a Jew to be in a Gentile household eating if for his whole life, most of what would be served to him, he thought, like, I can't have anything to do with that. Right? Like, maybe buyers are more like, man, bacon is what I've been missing all these years. But, like, there's a lot happening here. But it doesn't, like, Peter doesn't stay for a night and it doesn't go well and so he leaves, but he remains with them for a few days that everything about who these people are should indicate to us that they don't fellowship together. And because of the gospel, they are in fellowship together. Right? That, uh, and the, the weight of this text is everything that Sam and Dean were talking to us about this summer with compelling community. You know, that our community should be marked as utterly different than the world. So certainly, we can be friends with each other on shared interest or uh, shared experience, but the, the church's life uh, shouldn't be the kind of community that you can find elsewhere in the world. Like, that's not wrong, but the church's life is more than that. The church's life is intergenerational, cross-interests. Like, that if you could think about anything that would divide people in the world, that those divisions are non-existent in the church. That the gospel always brings a supernatural sort of unity to the people of God. And that certainly, uh, I don't know that I'd say it's Luke's point here. He's just pointing out to us that it's happened. But I would say to you that uh, this should always be something we are striving for. That as people, we demonstrate a sort of supernatural unity that only the gospel can bring. That uh, I wouldn't just say we should do it. I'd say we have a responsibility to do it. That it is an adornment of the gospel. That it's displaying uh, what Jesus bought for us on the cross. right? And that, that if we aren't leaning into this kind of community, if we aren't seeking to create this kind of community, if we're not... Uh, inviting over people 20 years our senior or 20 years our junior, if we're not uh, trying to uh, build relationships with people whom we share no other interest other than Christ, if we're not proactively doing this, I, we are dimming the beauty of the gospel, I think ultimately in a way that uh, does injustice, not just to what Christ has done for us, but for what Christ is trying to do through us. That that kind of community draws the world's attention in a way very few other things can and is ultimately one of the things that God most uses to progress the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we aren't constantly seeking to cultivate the kind of community that we're seeing at the end of this text and striving to protect that unity where it's found, ultimately, we're not serving the gospel's interests. We're serving our own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we, we thank you for the miracle of your grace evident in Cornelius' household. God, that you would... Uh, 
unite in Christ all people out of every nation, male, female, slave, free, Scythian, barbarian, that all people are called in Christ to join your people before your throne. God, we pray that uh, you would continue to cultivate in us a sense of awe at this truth. God, we pray that we would be reminded anew of, of the blessing that it is and that uh, you would extend the grace of Christ freely to any who would believe. And God, we pray that you would cultivate in us God, a growing trust that Jesus is the Christ, God, that Jesus is our Christ, that He is our peace, He is our hope, He is our satisfaction and joy, that we know, God, we know that He is our only appeal before You, but God, we pray that You would cultivate in us God, not just a faith of mind, but a faith of mind and heart. God, we, we pray that as these truths take deeper and deeper hold in us, that uh, the reality would be evident, that the fruit would be clear, God, that we would be empowered to work by your Spirit for the advance of the gospel, and that we would uh, continue to grow together in a way that displays the kind of unity only the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring. And we pray, Lord, that you would make your power evident in us, and not just for our sakes, but for our community's sake. And we pray that you would do all of this in Christ's name. Amen.